Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 968. On today's show, Dan Zimborski and Ben Clemens get together to chat about their work on the positional power rankings. Dan wrote about the catchers, and the duo discussed things like Will Smith's stardom, Yasmati Grandal's Wild 2021, and how the importance of framing makes Salvador Perez a controversial backstop. Meanwhile, Ben covered second and third base, so we also hear about topics like where Luis Arias fits in for the Twins, the strange arc of Gleyber Torres, Jose Altuve's Hall of Fame prospects, and how disappointed Dan is with the underwhelming White Sox second base situation. Their lack of just movement this offseason at a position to move beyond Nick Madrigal is just very, very disappointing to me, especially in a very competitive position. It's like your job is to put on the Super Bowl and you get as the halftime show like Soul Asylum or Chumba Wumba. Or Josh Harrison. Or Josh Harrison. Did Josh Harrison even have a hit as as big as Runaway Train? Did he have a season as good as that? <laughs> but before we get to this conversation, I must issue my weekly reminder for you to check out the Fangraphs.com shop. It is not only the place for you to get your official Fangraphs swag, but you can also pick up an ad-free membership for yourself or for a friend. This is the best way to not only browse a site at blazing fast speeds, but also to support the site and help us keep doing everything we do. We truly couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Fangraphs Audio. You're here with Dan Zimborski, which is your fortune or misfortune, depending on how you look at it. Today, I'm joined by my colleague, Ben Clemens, and we're here to talk about some positional power rankings. If you've read Fangraphs, and you probably have, or it would be really kind of weird that you're here, uh, we have been doing <laughs> positional power rankings since, I believe, 2013. It might not be 2013, but that is the story that I am going with. And as always, if I'm wrong or a projection is wrong, it's Carson's fault. Uh, so thank you for joining me, Ben, as we talk about the work we've been doing for the last week. Yeah, and in some cases, more than a week. Yeah, Ben has worked very hard because he did two positions already and a third position coming up, which makes me feel like a very, very lazy man. I think we're all lazy in our own ways. But that said... I find the positional power rankings exercise more useful than doing team previews, I think, actually, because I, I like getting a look down a position more than I like kind of looking across a team. Across a team, it's easy to be like, I don't know, some of these guys are good, some of these guys are bad. But when you just dive down the whole list, I, I feel like I find out a lot about the composition of a position. And also my fair share of like, oh, my God, this team's trying this here. <laughs> I guess there's there's a moment of horror every time you get to the Orioles in, in every position except except my position. They were they were fine. Uh, yes. So I, I will start with mine because I went first. Uh, and since I brought the introduction in, let's talk about catcher first. Catcher was an interesting position for me simply because would you agree with me when I say that there are very few like legitimate superstars at the position? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you think about a history, you know, Johnny Bench, Mike Piazza, Ivan Rodriguez. I mean, Yasmani Grandal and uh, JT Realmuto and Will Smith are terrific, but maybe I'm just getting old and jaded and, and the like, but they don't just have that same kind of that oomph, that juice. You don't, they're not going to highlight the all-star video package as they come in. Uh, maybe I'm wrong about that. And people are saying, Zaborski, how dare you? Will Smith is the ultimate Will Smith. <laughs> But am I wrong or am I right? Hopefully you're yeah, right. It's a little bit worrisome that he was a slap hitter last year. 
Hey. <laughs> no, that, that joke aside, I find Will Smith very good. And he was worth four and a half war last year. He was great. He had a 130 WRC plus, really good hitter. And the way that he does it is just not like superstarish. Like he's just, he's average at hitting balls in the zone. And he just does a good job of not swinging at the bad pitches and makes like kind of lower than average contact. He's not a tremendous contact hitter or anything. I guess he's like about average at contact, but he doesn't do a lot of damage when he hits balls in the zone. But he does enough, and he is really good at not swinging at crappy pitches, and it just kind of works. hes I think he's a superstar, right? Like, he's a star at least, but he just doesn't look it. It's just not the way that you expect your stars to have production. And yeah, after that, I mean, I think Real Mudo is fun and kind of feels like a traditionally great catcher. But yeah, like... I don't know. Yasmani Grandal is great, but doesn't do it in a way that I find visually, like, aesthetically pleasing. Sean Murphy is great, but he gets a lot of that value from defense. It, it really is kind of a thin crop. Now, speaking of Will Smith, how would you seed the Will Smiths? Because you have actor Will Smith, you have catcher Will Smith, you have picture Will Smith, you have various Smiths in history. There is a, a fashion designer named Will Smith. All sorts of people named William Smith. Yeah, I mean, I think you got to give the actor the top seed. Even if his character, the Fresh Prince, was kind of part of his duality? Yeah, I count the Fresh Prince in there. But also, like, he had his run in the late 90s as the biggest star in Hollywood. And I think, I mean, maybe Catcher Will Smith will pass him. But I don't think that anything that any of the other Will Smiths we've named has done so far has outstripped Will Smith's peak. His jaws would be very good because he's also been an actor for a long time. Okay, now for second place, Will Smith has has Dodgers. Will Smith passed Will Smith of the Braves. Oh, for me, yeah. Now, what about Will Smith, the the defensive end for the Saints? Hmm, that that's closer actually. I think I would probably because I just don't care as much about football. <laughs> give it give it to catcher Will Smith. But yeah, he's I would put him ahead of the Braves reliever too. Braves reliever Will Smith is a nice player. I got to write a top fifty free agents post where I just named a bunch of Will Smith movies, so I'll be forever grateful to him for that. But I don't think you know, he's been worth seven war in his ten year career. Yeah, nice pitcher. Now, now, now going back to Grandal, what do you make of him towards the end of the la- of last season? Because going into when he was injured, I think it was in July, he had one of the weirdest years of all time. Now, he's always been kind of a three true outcome type of player. A lot of home runs, walks, strikeouts, the, the you know, the Rob Deere archetype. But it was kind of extreme last year. He was below the Mendoza line by a pretty good margin most of the time. His OPS was higher than Deers ever was when he was below the uh, Mendoza yeah. line. And he was essentially arguably the best catcher in the league hitting like 190. Do you think that people have kind do you think these kinds of things have kind of helped push people along the line of not caring about a batting average as much as in the past? Or do you think it's just caused him to be more overrated? Well, do you know that he hit his exact career batting average last year? That's crazy. Yeah, that's because he came back. I- yeah, he really crushed it at the end of the year on batting average. But I think that people, like the average fan, does not change their opinion of batting average based on what Yasmani Grandal does. I think if you already were predisposed to like batting average, you thought he was worse than he was last year. And if you already were predisposed to care more about on-base percentage, well, yeah, he gets on base a ton. So I think you probably liked him. Credit to YouTube superstar Foolish Baseball, who was alerted me to the best chase of all time. Grandal was chasing the triple 100s, which is a BABIP in the 100s, a 
OPS plus in the 100s and a batting average in the 100s. That's very hard to do. And he didn't end up getting there, but it would have been singular and without parallel. No one has ever done it before in a meaningful amount of PAs. Now, who has, did you look up who has come closest? Because this is the, I, I, I've not seen, I follow Foolish Baseball, but I did not remember the triple 100s. And now this intrigues me. And now I'm wondering who was the closest. The only thing that I've seen is who did it in the most played appearances. And the most is like 30. Oh, well, 30 can't count for anything. Right. I think instead and of- And was doing it for like 200. <laughs> yeah. But then he came back from injury. And for some reason, when catchers in their 30s come back from injury now, they come back like twice as good as they when they left. The same thing happened uh, when, when you talk about the Royals. <laughs> oh, yeah. That gets further down the PPRs. How do you feel about Salvi? I'm really unsure like what to make of his rankings. Well, one of, one of the problems that you're going to run into, and I think that it might be more of a problem with, say, casual fans who don't necessarily read fan graphs regularly, but I think I think the longtime readers know about, you know, Sal Perez's limitations as a catcher. He's not a great defensive player. He's not a scientific hitter. You, you don't get him up there because you think he's going to have a high on-base percentage. He's not Joey Votto. He's, he's as successful uh, a C-ball, swing bat, hit ball player as there is. I think in, in the majors this year because that kind of that kind of thing is is dying out to it to an extent as you know front offices kind of feed into each other and the thinking kind of goes in the same direction yeah but I think for for a casual fan they see this guy hit 48 home runs he's been kind of the same player for a decade and those mean mean stat heads over at Fangraphs, who, you know, they get mad at us for a lot of things this time of year, have the royal situation as lower than the Marlins. Yeah. And I I think that's where you're going to run into a problem. I, I actually haven't gotten any nasty hate mail about it, but that, that might be a fluke because I, I usually get some nasty mail. I think the thing that makes Sal Perez such a, a controversial player who is um, a focal point for disagreements is that, like, if you don't believe in framing, well... I'm kind of confused because framing is the most old school of things that there is. Like if you ask people who followed baseball from the 50s of si 50s and 60s, they would totally believe in catcher framing. But if you don't believe in the quantization of catcher framing, like the quantification of it, then you're like, what are you talking about? Sal Perez wins gold gloves every year and he's a great hitter. Isn't he the best catcher in baseball? But he's like a really bad framer. And I don't think that people think of that as a defensive limitation for whatever reason, even though it's real. And the thing about catcher framing is that even in its classical conventional wisdom uh, format, it's something that if it exists, it should be able to be quant quantified somehow. A, a concept like leadership, you can't really do that. There's not any data out there that, that I can think of, at least maybe someone's far more imaginative than me. There's no data out there that, that you can think of and say that's like the leadership data. But framing always kind of had that storyline that it was turning you know balls into strikes with some euphemisms about that to try to get better calls yeah but there's also you know getting the calls that are strikes called strikes more frequently yeah like if you hold the bottom corner of the zone and it's in the zone you want that to be called a strike and if you receive it poorly it might not be yeah, but with such detailed tracking information as we have now that's yeah. the kind of data that should exist even if no one had thought of it yet and it's been confirmation, you know, that framing exists and is important. But I think one of the things we've discovered is that the players that framing stats 
evaluate as good framers is probably a different type of player than was predicted by the people say in the in the 70s yes. uh, because i talked about it a little in my positional in the power rankings uh there was something that we had in the 90s on usenet called the nichols law of catcher defense uh that was sherry nichols kind of law that she she coined a long time Oh, we're talking 30 years ago that a catcher's defensive reputation was inversely proportional to their offensive reputation. And I think that if you didn't have framing data and you asked a whole bunch of people, especially fans, who the best framers are, I think you would have kind of just a, a wide assortment of light hitting, scrappy, mid 30s white dude catchers. Right. But when you look at actual framing data, that's not actually the case. Yeah, some are, but there's also some people like Randall. Real Muto. Or Real Muto that you wouldn't necessarily think of as very good framers. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that's one of the most interesting parts about framing, about the quantification of it is I just, I don't believe you if you are an old school baseball person who says, oh, I don't, I don't believe in framing. Like, of course you do. You just don't think. Like, you want it to be quantified differently, and you think that the guys who throw out a bunch of runners at second base are probably good framers. I think that's also kind of a, a thing that is an easy-to-miss problem with the switch. Not problem, but a side effect of the switch to being able to quantify this uh, these extra strikes or lost strikes is that there's a, a rubric in people's head that if you throw out a lot of runners at second base, you're a good defensive catcher. And that's just not that important in the grand scheme of things. And I think that's an easy mistake to make. At Sal Perez's peak, just to use him as a good example, he was a very good kind of blocker and base running preventer. And so some of his gold gloves were on the back of that, right? Like he, he really, he did provide positive defensive value in the non-framing stuff. And I don't know if he does anymore. I think he had a pretty bad year in, uh, in 21. But like those skills are much easier to correlate with how good of a defender a catcher is. And you can see those. Those are easier to see. And I think that there's just, it's easy to get a little bit confused about what a good defensive catcher is these days, because some skills are still seeable and obvious, and some are, you know, not calculated at baseball reference, where a lot of people look at their stats, and it also might all go away in five years. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a confusing skill at this point. It's an interesting skill in a way, because it's almost based on an inefficiency of how baseball is judged by the rulers of, of balls and strikes rather than kind of a, an inherent part of the game, if you, if you think about it. It's like tricking the umpire as a skill in, in some kind of way. I think if there was a flop plus in soccer, people would be into it. <laughs> or, or like it, it always felt a little to me like like a lawyer being good at making nonsense arguments to a judge. It feels kind of – there's. You know, there's no appeal in baseball. So it, right. I'm, I'm torn on it because it's nice to see an ability that separates good players from poor players. But you also, on, on a fundamental level, you want to see a sport judged correctly and evaluated correctly based on the players on the field, not, you know, pulling the wool over anyone's eyes. So I'll be sad to see it go, but I personally think it's probably necessary. I wrote a piece some years ago for ESPN to bring on the robot balls and strikes, and I'm I'm still there. Yeah, I think I agree with that. I think it'll change how catching looks, but, you know, like the game changes and got to adapt with it or keep loving your old style of baseball that no one plays anymore. And of course, uh, if some of the changes like moving the second moving second base is trans is transition to the majors, if the larger bags help, if you have something that deadens the ball, maybe the humidor 
humidors, not the humididors. You could feasibly, especially if framing was less of a valuable thing, all of a sudden start to see that stolen base arm to be a bigger part of a character's game again. Yeah, and that'd be fun. It would be fun. And, of course, Yachty looks great no matter how you look at it. Uh, how do you feel about the Yachty Pujols uh, farewell tour? I think it's maybe not the best baseball decision, but I don't care. It's cool. And I don't think it's, what, if it cost them one marginal win some percentage of the time, so what? It's really cool. Albert Pujols and the Cardinals again for a farewell tour is great. And I'm happy that it's happening. I'm a little bit sad that it uh, it blocks Juan Yepes, who I really like. And I think he was in the Zips top 100 prospects, right? I think he just missed. It was pretty close. Yeah, he's like, I think, a a person who talent evaluators are lower on than kind of like his crazy 2021 season. And I would have liked to see him try it in the majors. But look, he can try it in 2023 and getting one last ride out of Albert Pujols. I love that they synced it up with what's presumably Wainwright and Molina's last year, too. Yeah, I was about to ask you about that, because I don't believe that Wainwright has made an announcement unless I've missed it. No, in fact, when someone on the Cardinals in an interview... Uh, when a reporter kind of, you know, linked up the tour, he said, I haven't decided if I'm retiring yet. I kind of feel like someone has to tell him that if you want a tour, this is the tour to go on. Yeah. How many commemorative bobblehead nights or commemorative gift nights will the Cardinals have this year? Just they're going to set a record, I think. Like imagine if before like Charlie Watts passed away of the Rolling Stones. Imagine if Mick Jagger and Keith Richards says we're going on a farewell tour and Charlie Watts said okay i'll come along but i'm not going to retire right it's like no it's if you want if if jagger and richards are retiring if you want a farewell tour you have to retire too yeah because you're not going to get the charlie watts retirement tour in two more years i would say this i think that people who read fan graphs and sometimes people who write at fan graphs and people who analyze who think about baseball in the way that we do sometimes get a little bit lost in the fact the point of a team is to win games that that's true but the point of a team, really, at its core, is to make its fans happy. Like, that's what you're paying for. It's entertainment. And I think that signing Albert Pujols, regardless of the effect on their wins and losses, which is likely to be very small, is incredible for the fans and big fan of it. I wish more teams would do stuff like this. It's great. Should, should the Cardinals make more signings to add to the farewell tour? Just kind of have the monster farewell tour? No. I think that I think that it's easy. Like, I don't think that I would gain more enjoyment from having David Freeze and Albert Pujols and Molina and Wainwright than just the three of them. I mean, Dexter Fowler, I believe, is playing this year. Yeah, he is. You have him for the farewell tour. Uh, That would not be a well-received tour in St. Louis. People were not big Dexter Fowler fans. Lower on him than they should have been, but that's largely because the Cardinals kept running him out there after he had declined past usability. But yeah, um, that tour wouldn't quite work. I think that Pujols is a generational player, and if you honestly care enough about, I mean, do you think it's even one win of difference? Probably not. Yeah. If you care enough about the half win or whatever, that he may cost them, and that's not even clear. Like, probabilistically, that's going to happen only some fraction of the time. I mean, I'm fairly sure that, I mean, I could be wrong, but I'm not getting the impression that the Cardinals are going to give Pujols uh, 500 plate appearances or anything. No. I think he's basically a, a short side DH. Yeah, that, that's that's what I thought, and that, that kind of makes sense. Yeah, and would Yepes be slightly better in that role? I think so, but by enough to matter? No, so like, give the people what they want. I'm totally happy with it. Now, how would you feel if, uh, say, on the last day of the season, uh, they cleared some room on the 40-man roster and brought back, you know, for one final game, some more like the 2011 team? Oh, sure, why not? 
like Matt Holiday, I mean, it'd be fun for him to have one last game, don't you think? Yeah, I think it would be a mistake to like try to get anything competitively out of them. That's not going to happen. But if they have a way to do it that isn't like seriously deleterious to their future 40-man situation, and I don't know, they have a bunch of guys in the 60-day IL or something, and the game doesn't matter. Well, if they do, they could bring in the whole crowd. They could say, okay, Berkman, you want another shot at the Hall of Fame? Well, we're going to tow you. We're going to bring back John Jay. Yeah, like, I don't think Schumacher. I think if they did this in a game that had competitive implications, I would be annoyed. And if they did it on, you know, I don't know what the last day of the season is this year, October 3rd or September 30th or whatever, in a game that's meaningless, in a way that didn't affect anyone, yeah, then that's cool. Do it. I don't know if that's like the the stat head approved perspective, but it seems fine to me. How do you feel about it? I approve of it. I like fun things are fun. So... As long as something's fun in the end, as long as you're not saying, Dan, make that part of war, I'd be like, no, but I can right. I can have fun. Fun things and good things can be different. I don't think I love tacos. I love beer, but I don't I'm not going to say that tacos and beer are health food. Oh, that's a twist of the old Dan Perry thing. It would be nice if they were. Now, to move on beyond catcher, because it, it's kind of rude if we just talk about the things I worked on when I was reading through your second base uh, PPRs. I thought that there was an opportunity to be a lot meaner to the White Sox because their lack of just movement this offseason at a position to move beyond Nick Madrigal is just very, very disappointing to me, especially in a very competitive position. It's like your job is to put on the Super Bowl and you get as the halftime show like Soul Asylum or Chumbawamba. Or Josh Harrison. Or Josh Harrison. Did Josh Harrison even have a hit as as big as Runaway Train? Did he have a season as good as that? <laughs> no, he was more of a um, – he got more popular at the end. Maybe he's Eve 6. They, they seem to have had resurgent popularity. Harrison had 4.8 war in 2014. Pretty good in 2014. 137 WRC+. plus. He batted 315. I think that actually might be better than Runaway Train. He was a Runaway Train that year. Thank you. I'll be here all week. Never coming home or come back. I don't think it's really, I don't generally use the power rankings as a place to take teams to task because no. it's only 200 words and maybe 250 if you're if you're really pushing it. And I have more than 250 words of bad things to say about the White Sox doing this at second base. Every time that I have a chat, someone asks me what the White Sox should do about second base and I say they should trade Craig Kimbrell for Nick Madrigal. Just like. <laughs> it's actually a very, it would be a perfect trade. Yeah. I mean, aside from the fact that Craig Kimbrell isn't that valuable. Yeah, and the Cubs might not want to do it. But for the White Sox, it would be perfect because... Yeah, Nick Madrigal is the perfect fit for them. Yeah, it, it's kind of weird how, because it was a decent trade to make, I'll, I'll still stand by that. No matter how it worked out, I still think it was a trade that needed to be made simply because of where they were last summer. But the opposite is true now, but... Yeah, I think they wildly overpaid, personally. Like, I think they needed to get a reliever, but I think that they could have gotten a worse reliever for less. Madrigal was too good of a player to give up for essentially one and a half seasons of Craig Kimbrell at a not particularly attractive rate. I think I think one of the reasons I was okay with it is I envisioned them doing more at the position than Josh Harrison and and Larry Garcia. Yeah, that's fair. I just really uh I think Madrigal is one of the safest players to roster in baseball. I, I think imagining him not giving you average production is just hard. Now, at the t- now to go from the bottom of the list to the top of the list, were you surprised to see the Rays at number one? 
because there are some really good second basemen in baseball, especially now that Trevor Story is a second baseman for yeah. the near future, at least. Because, you know, you have Ozzy Albies, you have Marcus Simeon, you have some really good second basemen out there. But at the top, someone who didn't even make the Silver Slugger finalists for some reason at second base, while DJ LeMahieu did, uh, was, was Brandon Love, however you pronounce his name. I, I don't know who's who. So I was very surprised, but it's a little bit... A little bit blunted by the fact that for the entire time that I wrote it, and literally until the night before it published, they were not number one. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the best. What what always happens for people who want to see how the sausage is made, because, you know, from Hamilton, that's what you want to do. You want to know how the game is yeah. played, how the sausage is made. When, when we divide up pictures from 1 to 15 and 16 to 30... What happens sometimes is, is you have different people writing 1 to 15 and 16 to 30 that there's a dividing line of as teams jump back and forth from the line. Uh, last year, I think it was Eric and I on Relief Pictures, we each had written, we had doubled up like on three teams and Oof. not written at all about two teams. And we were kind of at the last minute kind of doing a hybridization of the of the posts we made to to try to do it because as we reinitialized the tables our text kept going in and out of existence like a time travel movie almost uh let me quickly just say silver slugger finalist at second base last year justin turner <laughs> i think they may have met trey uh, <laughs> but he, that was a mistake uh ignore silver sluggers is the point uh yeah what happened with the rays is that basically Jason Martinez projects playing time, and then we map that over our combined steamer and zips projections, and that spits out war. Initially, Lau was projected to spend more time in the outfield and at DH, and as he kept pushing Lau into more second base playing time, they just kept climbing up the list. And so I think they started in the like four to five range with Lau spending a lot of time elsewhere. And as it became more clear that the Rays were just going to play him at second, they just kept climbing. I don't think that the Rays will have the most war from second base this year. You don't. Are you are you bashing our tables? How dare you? <laughs> Traitor! If I've learned from anyone that you shouldn't just add up war to figure out how good a team is, it's Dan Zimborski. Oh, man. Mm, how, you there. You can't. People shouldn't have their words used against them. That's against some kind of law. Yeah. Like, I think Lau is very good. And I think that if I had to pick one second baseman as, like, my most underrated second baseman, I think it would easily be him. I think Kevin and I screwed up by not having him in our top 50 trade value last year. Ooh, that was, that was a bad one. Now, I think he's starting to get rated. You know who I who my pick is for the most underrated second baseman? Ooh. Luis Orayes. Ooh. I was actually saying it rhetorically. Do you mean Ramon or Luis? Luis. Luis Orayes. Oh, Arias. I was thinking Arias. Okay, yeah. I can't roll my R's. It's it's pretty terrible. I took Spanish as my language in high school and, and as my language in college. And I can't roll my R's because you get down the alphabet, you're like, you know, and I can't I can't roll my tongue. I have just like a short, a short, stubby tongue. And it just sounds like I'm spinning. I can't roll my R's. I'm not going to just spend this whole podcast rolling my R's, but I'm tempted. I want to hear you. Someone roll their R's. We were robbed of a very good Arias. Arias. There you go. You do it better than this. Because he was projected to have all the twins playing time at second base before they signed Correa. And I was very excited. I He's one of my favorite players. Like, just full stop. He's really fun. He's projected for a 300 batting average. <laughs> it's incredible. Yeah, Zips had him, I believe, 
I forget it was 2020 or 2021, because at this point between COVID and lockouts, all the years is just kind of mushing into some one horror chunk. But Zips did have him as the as the best batting average player in baseball. Yeah, and he is a lot of fun. Also, I think criminally underrated because he doesn't really have a position and the Twins don't really maximize his talents because they're constantly shuffling around and putting him in left field and stuff. And that that does put a cap on his playing time and his comfortability defensively. And he's not a good defender. But yeah, he's awesome and very underrated. I was thinking Luis Arias, if we want to transition to third base, who I think is the most underrated third baseman. Yeah, he's he's one of those guys. I had him on my breakout pick last year. I was going to say, isn't he Zips's favorite player of all time? Yeah, Zips has loved him forever. So when he actually had a really good season, I was like, yes, I don't look stupid. Because, you know, I've had problems at second base, third base shortstop because of Glaber Torres, who... Yeah. <laughs> and the thing about Glaber, who we can still talk about because he's a second baseman, nobody would think that he was... It's not like it's some we- that liking him was some kind of weird statistical quirk. Uh, like right. you tell someone, okay, this person was considered an elite shortstop prospect, or at least an infield prospect. He hit, you know, a billion home runs in his early twenties in the majors. In the major leagues. Yeah, it wasn't like this was some kind of weird AAA veteran who the projections just liked his translation. He was someone who he had already shown a lot in the majors. I mean, he was only 24 last year. So are you as optimistic as our projections are? Because they do have him up at 10th, which, I mean, would be disappointing going into last year, but they'd probably take that now pretty easily. Yeah, I equate Torres and Alex Bregman a little bit as guys who seem to have a lot more like up-down volatility to the baseball. Anthony Rendon kind of in that group as well than you'd love to have for your star performers. Like, it seems like Torres has never been a really maxing out on power guy. He hits the ball hard, but he doesn't hit the ball hard that frequently. Yeah, but but 38 home runs at 22. Yeah, 2019 was a, was a big home run year. It's the biggest home run year ever, I but believe. But still, 38 home runs. Yeah, it's very 22. good. Um, I am surprised by his kind of, well, especially his power outage in 2021. It's shocking. And I think that our projections counting on a rebound in his home runs, I don't quite buy that he's going to have this much power this year. 23 homers is kind of the the official depth charts projection. Although, God, 630 plate appearances sounds high too. That's neither here nor there. I struggle with Glaber because I think he might be kind of a bad defender. Even at second, you don't think he can he can hack it? I have no idea, honestly. Like, I don't think that it's easy to just kind of port him across from short to second. I think a lot of his defensive shortcomings are less range-related, although they are range-related, too. I think that he'll be an average player. I would maybe have him a little lower than 10th, because I I think also that... And look, this veers kind of close to just soft, made-up things that I can't quantify, but I think that he's really not loving the New York experience. It has kind of been a, a bad... A bad time for him to have started so hot and then cooled rather than do the reverse. And you kind of saw it happen with Gary Sanchez that he's going to do a lot better outside of New York, I think, because that city was not good for him. Yeah, I kind of felt that way, too, especially in in, in Sanchez's also a catcher. So still on topic. We are getting pretty good at this. It felt like he was being blamed for being injured, which is a really awkward thing to do to a player. And being blamed for not having a skill set that he doesn't have, like. I think that there were a lot of people upset that Sanchez wasn't, you know, his first 50 games or whatever. And yeah, okay. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry I'm not the best catcher in history. Yeah, unlucky. And I, I do wonder if Labor suffers from that a little bit, where he was 
you know, I I made the joke about Glaber Torres is only 22. Uh, he's 25 now. <laughs> but still, that's that's still pretty young. It's still pretty young, but I think there is a bit of like it's hard to handle those expectations. Not handle those expectations. That that's a load of crap. I I take that back. It's hard to have those expectations forcibly put upon you by a just really over over militant and over cares about every little thing fan base and media base. If he's a three to four war player every year, or even a two and a half to three and a half war player every year, that's a great player, right? That's more than the Yankees thought they were getting when they traded all these Chapman for him. Yeah, I mean, you you traded a few months of a closer. What do you expect? Right. Don't be greedy. They have probably already gotten way more than than oh, any yeah. reasonable expectation. Absolutely. I am of the belief that if you just let him play a single position, that that might help him. Because it's yeah. kind of hard because he had to kind of go back to shortstop kind of on the fly. And, you know, some players can handle that. But, you know, he's not as gifted as some other defensive players. Yeah, I don't think he's ever going to win a gold glove. And that's fine. Like, that's not a Cheater won a gold glove. Yeah, but they don't work like that anymore. <laughs> they don't work like that anymore. Sticking with third base, since Sanchez and the Twins worked up, I have to ask... Are the Twins starting their third best third baseman at third base? Because yes, they are. I think I'd rather have Orias starting at third. I think I'd rather actually have Jose Miranda starting on third. I think Urshela should be kind of their super sub guy. Uh, but it seems like Orias, I mean, we touched on batting average, but it's it's absurd that this guy who's hit no, he's like a 313 hitter in the majors doesn't have a regular position of his own. Yeah, that's that's Urshela's on-base percentage projection. <laughs> <laughs> that's bad. That's a bad on-base percentage. It's not terrible, but when you have a guy who's... Like, what's Arias's career uh, career OBP? It's got to be like 380 or something. Well, well it's it's uh, 374. Yeah, pretty close. I mean, you, that's... Because, yeah, that would be... If you, you take his average year, 374, 403, that's better than most of Urshela's career, which really comes down to a very good 2019 and a very good partial 2020. He was not good last year. And it, yeah, there was good. no batting average and balls in play reason, because sometimes you can point to that and say, well, that guy had a 180 Babip after having 300 for his career, and you say, oh, well, he's going to be fine. But that wasn't the case at all for, for Urshela. Yeah, he... I think it was always optimistic to think that he would be able to walk a lot. And his 2020 was like kind of the season, except that he walked 10% of the time and only struck out 14% of the time in a very abbreviated sample. And so, yeah, if he's suddenly, I mean, I can't think of an exact comparison to those plate discipline numbers, but like Mike Trout, when he's not making contact, then, <laughs> then there's a lot of space to be pretty good without being good when you make contact with the ball. But he's just not a like power on contact guy. and that's fine. Not everyone has to be a power on contact guy, but he's also not a good batting eye guy. And those two combined are, I mean, I don't think he was terrible in 2021. He is kind of like a, an average bat power, like some power, which he's always had, like not a lot of power, but he'll, he'll run into some home runs, particularly in Yankee stadium and like, okay, defense, pretty good defense. He's not the best third base defender, like a lot of people would have you believe, but he's a decent third base defender. But if you think that he's going to be an above average hitter, well, he's not in his career <laughs> and he wasn't last year and he's not really projected to be, except by Zips. Zips loves him. 111 WRC plus projection. But uh, I don't think he's like a great hitter. I don't think he's a great defender. He's a nice player. He's like an average player overall. And that's kind of what our projection for him is. I think that 
both Arias and Miranda have more upside than that. And it's, I'm with you. I think it's weird to have the depth chart look like it does. I would give one of those two guys the job and just let them run with it. I think they're both awesome. And I think Miranda might be like the best player no one's heard of. Uh, now, uh, I guess to finish off our second base, third base discussion, I kind of want to get back into Jose Altuve. He had a great 2021 season. Shocking. He had 31. Yeah. Ho- yeah, much better. I mean, Zips projected a bounce back season, but nothing like that. I mean, he he matched his career high in home runs. Yeah, you know, he had a few more plate appearances than that previous 31 home run season. But it was also a season where home runs went down quite a bit. Yeah. Do you feel, I mean, he's very high still in the ranks and the projections. He's projected for a four-win season in our depth charts. How do you feel about his Hall of Fame trajectory now? Do you think it's firmly back on track, even considering the the possible side effects and repercussions of the trash kananigans? Yeah, that's the only reason I have pause, because otherwise I would say yes. I would say yes, he is on a Hall of Fame trajectory if it weren't for the fact that I think there's some chance that his 2017 and 2018 seasons, particularly 2017, which was his best season and the year that the Astros were reputed to be cheating the most, get discounted. Now, I think, is that fair? I mean, I don't really think so. Uh, The reporting from it has kind of notably shown that he didn't want to be involved and was upset by it in a way that a lot of the other Astros were maybe less so. (laughs) But I think that puts a bit of a, a cloud over the situation because, I don't know, the character clause is kind of nonsense and... I don't really know how to fairly apply it, but it'll come up. There will be a lot of sore writers who will bring it up. I do think the character clause is pretty significant here simply because I think that based on the original design of it and who it was applied to, I feel that it was clearly meant to be applied to baseball actions. Right. And the problem I see with the science dealing wasn't that it really gave them a huge advantage the crime I see isn't an advantage, but it's the seeking of the advantage, whether or not it works or not. I'm yeah. not convinced at all it really helped all that much. In the same way corked bats are cheating, even though they don't really help much, the fact is they are perceived to help and that there was skullduggery and a cover-up of it. Yeah, I agree with all that. But if you're talking about on the numbers, I do think so. And how old would you guess Jose Altuve is right now? Well, I I know how old he is, so... So that won't work. Um, yeah. Hey, Dylan. Dylan, <laughs> well, are you would... here? If Dylan's here, we can have him guess. Sure, I'm here. You want me to guess how old Jose Altuve is? Yeah, yeah. but don't look at anything. Uh, I would guess 32. Well, that's a good guess. He's about to turn 32. Okay. That's impressive. Okay, so this quiz doesn't work. I would have guessed he was like 34. He's been around for a long time. Yeah, I, I know I know when he was born. I would have guessed 31 years, 10 months. <laughs> <laughs> I would have just guessed that out of the blue. Yeah, you know, random guess, but he's been around for a long time, and he came up younger than I expected, basically. He was he was a very young debut. He debuted at 20, and I didn't know that. But he has time to add quite a bit to his career accomplishments, and his peak is already spectacular. In the 2015 to kind of 2018 window, he was just really good. I mean, 2014, he started being really good. Over those five years, he put up 30 war. That's that's very impressive. And he's going to end up above 50 for his career. Yeah, it would be hard now. I mean, he could he could get injured. He could go Steve Sachs and 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 get arrested for all the murders in Springfield. But uh, it would be hard to fall below 50 now. Yeah. And not only that, but he won an MVP and he won a World Series. He's a kind of a, a memorable baseball player. He's tiny, but hits home runs. And everyone remembers that. 
I would be surprised if he doesn't have the statistical resume to make the Hall of Fame. The cheating stuff is what would, uh, you know, deserve it or undeserve it. And I make no judgment as to that here, even though I kind of say undeserve it. You know, I will I will force you, sir, to make a judgment. I believe by the time Altuve is in the Hall, you will have your card in the next few years, your, your writer's card. Ten years has to pass. And I don't think that Altuve is going to retire for, you know, six, seven, eight more years. And then five years after that. Yeah. So I think you're going to vote for him. If Jose Altuve accumulates 15 more war in his playing career and is on the ballot when I have a Hall of Fame ballot, I will vote for him. Okay, so you heard it, people. If Jose Altuve finishes with 54.3 war, Ben Clemens is not voting for him. No, I will probably I would probably vote for him with less than that. But then um, I would have to do some consideration. I think if he's in the 55 war area, I think he's a yes automatically. And I think if he falls short of that, He'll probably be a yes unless his fall off is drastic in a way that makes me reconsider things. See, I wanted to make make a bright line so that we could have the Ben Clemens controversy at that <laughs> And you ruined my fun. I will vote for him. I think he's at the point peak wise where he's very, very close. If he if he got hit by a bus today, and I know we always use the bus test, which is kind of weird because it's this very singular, gruesome event that we always use in, as an example. Stop of, hitting dudes with buses, yeah. Yeah, I mean, why one? I mean, I they can afford not to have to take mass transportation. I mean, they're they're very wealthy men, and <laughs> you think that they're old enough to you know look when they run into traffic. Wait, you know you can get hit by a bus without being on the bus. True, but I mean, you're more bus adjacent if you're going on the bus. Well, that's true. If you're getting in your fancy pants Bentley, that that. Jeeves or or Huggins is driving you. Sorry, Dylan. Uh, you 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 have less of a chance of getting hit by a bus. I mean, maybe yeah. if you got hit like in a car accident. But we tend to think of it as like an actual smush, don't we? Yeah. When I hear that phrase, that's what I think. No argument. You think there. you know the bus hits you, you go splat, and there's thump thump as the bus drives over it. Not like a just like a head-on car collision. Yeah. I don't know if more bus hits are. From people riding buses or people who are just near buses because buses drive on city streets and people live in cities. But I don't think Jose Altuve is going to get hit by a bus. I hope he doesn't. Dylan, don't take that part out. Yeah, Dylan, (laughs) we definitely, one of our positions at Fangraphs is that veiled threats of violence against Dylan are allowed. I would say that uh, I'm pro-bus. I'm a big fan of public transit, but I'm anti-people getting hit by buses. Now, some of those are unavoidable because traffic does cause accidents over time, but I would prefer... More buses and less famous baseball players' careers being ended by their death due to bus hit. Those are two Fangraphs editorial positions I'm strongly in favor of. You know, I'm I'm sure that there's actually data out there about the rate that people are hit as pedestrians by different vehicles. Because I know I was reading somewhere uh, when I had a Subaru that that Crosstrek owners uh, had a high safety rate, but were the most likely to cause accidents. Really? So that that data has to be out there somewhere. I feel like cross treks are very safe cars. Well, they're safe for the people driving, but they also the people driving the cross treks are apparently not safe. Oh, because, it's that hidden giant battering ram in the front. Yeah, it's all that plastic cladding. It makes you think off road body smushing. It's it's you know an all terrain vehicle. That's how Subaru sells the all wheel drive. I have essentially a cross trek in a different skin, a Honda HRV. And I can tell you that it doesn't really make me feel super safe because it's a small SUV, just like the Crosstrek, but it does 
I think it is nonetheless quite safe. Uh, you, you know. Yeah, you you felt you felt higher in it because you, you know it had a good lift from the ground. I owned a Crosstrek uh, until last October, and I traded in for a a Mazda three Turbo, and you did feel safer in the Crosstrek. I think it's I think it's a height thing. People feel high. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Because you know you go through military history, there's always a height advantage. Well, we we were talking about Jose Altuve. You were you, were, you referred to him as tiny, oh. uh, and uh, there's another tiny star. <laughs> That you have been in, in, involved in, I, I, I promised I would find a segue to make that this was work. incredible. Ben's been playing Tiny Tina's Wonderlands, which he has called the game of the year, and that's a pretty big thing because we are only in March and we haven't even hit the days of like you know the big months of summer releases of games. I think what I said was Tiny Tina's Wonderland is the game of the year. Forget Elden Ring. I hate Elden Ring. Elden Ring makes me sad. I'm paraphrasing slightly, but. I bought Elden Ring like a month ago, I guess, when it came out, and I just it's I just keep dying, and I don't progress that much, and I don't find that style of gameplay satisfying. And I wanted a change from it this weekend. I had some free time, and a friend of mine told me I should download Tiny Tina's Wonderlands, and I said, oh, okay, I don't really know what this is. I've never played Borderlands. Downloaded it. It is incredible. If you guys like video games and like open world games, you should play it. I think it both manages to be a pretty good open world game, a pretty good kind of looter shooter, you know, loot chest, but not kind of the crappy RNG loot boxes that everyone hates. I don't even know if they have any in-game currency purchases. Like the whole point of the game is just to roll random loot and kill bad guys. And the feedback loops are very satisfying. It is also a very successful parody of Dungeons and Dragons and Skyrim. It really, <laughs> it really hammers those tropes really well and, makes it obvious that it's hammering those tropes and that there's fun to be had in poking fun at them. I didn't expect it to be good, or I expected it to be diverting and a nice thing to do in my in my free time. I'm amazed by how good the game is. I highly suggest everyone check it out. And I, w- and I was talking before we went on air with Ben and Dylan about Tiny Tina's Wonderlands and Borderlands generally, and I was shocked to find, first, that Dylan had played Borderlands 2, but not Tiny Tina's Assault on Dragon Keep, which I thought was the best DLC of Borderlands 2, which was already a good game. And I was equally shocked that Ben, his entrance into the Borderlands world is this game, which and he enjoys it too, even without knowing some of the backstory of the characters that are parodied from Borderlands. And I was thinking it's a little like someone whose first Harry Potter movie was Deathly Hallows Part 2 and still loved it. And I thought that was amazing. So it's either a testament to how well it something like that translates without even having to know the backstory or that Ben is just insane. So I will say this for people who have not played Borderlands. I'm sure there are a lot of Borderlands in jokes in this. I don't know any of them and the game does not dwell on them very much. The whole game takes place as you playing a, I think it's called Badasses and Bunkers. It's a D&D ripoff in Tiny Tina's bunker. And so she narrates it. And so occasionally the action is broken, but you are just playing as not a Borderlands character, but a, you know, a randomly generated dice rolled D&D character. And your person does not have a backstory in the Borderlands universe. And at least as far as I've gone, nothing has happened in the Borderlands universe yet. It's just her narrating a D&D campaign. And I've never played D&D also, or not since I was like eight or something. But I understand a lot of the tropes. And man, it does a good job skewering them. 
And it's it's interesting how it's a layer of satire upon satire because it's a satire of D&D on top of a satire of a first-person shooter over that's set in a satire of a science fiction world. Right. There's 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 a lot of uh, of joking going on, and I think it also does a really good job of like I love Skyrim. I played a hundred hours of Skyrim, and the self seriousness with which it took itself was at times annoying. And I I thought that the feedback loops were good enough that I didn't care. I had fun playing it, even if I was like, oh my god, these characters are so self righteous. And Tiny Tina's Wonderlands really really says what you're kind of thinking when you play these games that like <laughs> we get it. Like sometimes someone's droning on about their noble quest and one of the voice actors literally says oh we get it you're noble <laughs> it's it's just a very well done game i think the the feedback loops are good the way that you feel when you're playing the game is good but the writing is just top notch couldn't recommend it more very surprised to be saying this i talked about elden ring two hours into my playing the game on kevin's podcast before he left and said oh i'm sure i'm gonna love this game <laughs> turns out not true <laughs> and turns out i love very easy games where you just go after the same bad guys over and over again more I, I do enjoy the Dark Souls series. I haven't played Elden Ring yet just because I have been playing a lot of Forza Horizon 5 and WWE 2K21 came out or 2K22 came out. And as usual, my gaming of it involves making a lot of baseball players and having them beat each other up, which amuses me in the doldrums of the collective bargaining and agreement negotiations. Now, before I get into a long rant about why I think Oblivion is better than Skyrim, I just want to thank everyone for joining us today to talk about Fangraph's positional player rankings. Uh, and I hope you check them out because we have a lot more to go. Our whole team is doing one or the other. So no matter who you like, someone has something for you. And if these this kind of content is the kind of we want to see, uh, consider becoming a member. We are very fortunate that the season went on as, as we hoped it would with the lockout finally coming to a conclusion. But, you know, there were some tough times. And if you want to become a member, we would greatly appreciate it because our community is why we exist. So whether you can or can't, maybe you're helping for someone who else who can't. So that is all we have time for in Fangraphs Audio today. For Ben Clemens and Dylan Higgins, I want to thank you all for joining us again, and we'll see you next time. This has been Fangraphs Audio. If you enjoyed the show, consider sharing it with a friend or two. It helps us out. After you head over to the Fangraphs shop, don't forget to sign up for the Fangraphs newsletter. It is the best way to keep up on everything we have going on at the site every day, and let me assure you, there is plenty. We hope you have a good week, and we will talk to you next time.